can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is ready on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that like to discuss directors' work. Um, we like to talk about their films that we like, and also some of their films from their body of work that we don't like, uh, hence the Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And uh, <laughs> we're actually on our, our second pass of the alphabet at the moment, and we're on the, the letter that keeps giving, because this is almost like a bot a bottomless well of, uh, of of directors that have the surname ending with the letter C. Or you could say it's an abyss. Hey, there you go. Oh, he's <laughs> given it away. <laughs> of course, I've always realised this, though. We always, we always like, what's your pick going to be like? It's a surprise. Yet, actually, if they read the notes that come with the podcast, they know anyway. So there you go. But uh, Ah, but for those who don't read notes, and there are many... There you it's go. still a surprise. It's still a surprise. Well, I mean, last time, you know, we tend to do things that are that are quite personal to us on a lot of these. And last time we did uh, John Carpenter, which was obviously a big influence. But uh, this time it's it. Well, we, we almost had to, even though there are so many letter C's out there. We have gone with Canadian director James Cameron. And uh, I have to say, Simon, I'm I'm. I'm kind of nervous because this is a, this is another big one. This is another important one, um, you know, like Spielberg and Tarantino and Michael Mann and you know several others. But you know, this this one, I have to admit, when I went to film school uh, in the mid '90s, um, you, you know, James Cameron was like uh, you, you know God to me, and you know, a massive influence. So. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to dig into this one a bit today. <laughs> well, let's just start at the beginning then. When did you become aware of James Cameron? Ah, right. OK. Um, well, uh, it was it was through, I think I've mentioned this once before on, on these podcasts. It was um, my good friend, Chris, who was, who's uh, been a guest on, on the Pink Floyd episode that we did uh, to go with the Alan Parker one. Uh, he brought it over on VHS. Uh, one Saturday morning. What did he bring over? Sorry, the Terminator. <laughs> the Terminator. And, uh, you know, I just thought it was absolutely amazing. Uh, it blew me away. I watched it, you know, several times in a row. I enjoyed it that much. And, um, you, you know, that, that, that was my first experience of, of James Cameron. But then obviously following that, because I enjoyed that so much, I, I then, of course, um, 
followed his career moving moving forward. And uh, when when I was at film school, we actually had to do a, a thesis on, on somebody um, in, in the form of a presentation mainly. And uh, I actually did mine on James Cameron. And the reason I did it was we had to obviously have a point to the thesis about, you know, what what have we got to say about this person? Why is this person an important filmmaker? And um, I had read the uh, biography of his called Dreaming Aloud by Christopher Hurd. And, um, you know, it was it, it sort of set set him up and, and described sort of his back life and, and his story getting there. And it was almost like he was kind of part inventor, part artist, part businessman. Um, and, uh, you, you know, he, like you and I and a lot of us who are film fans out there, it all started for him with Star Wars because because he was sort of working as a truck driver and he, he saw the film Star Wars and was like, oh, man, you know, I, I want to make a movie like that. So he went and actually uh, figured out how to do it by taking lenses to bits and studying, you know, um, cameras and, and that sort of thing. And, and I think that's what's what, what sort of sets him apart. And if you like, the point of my thesis at the time was you know, this guy, he writes, he produces, he directs, he edits, he operates camera in, in quite a lot of cases. And he actually pioneers technology uh, and develops technology. So he is big on developing technology. If it's not for Cameron, we wouldn't have CGI. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you, you know, he, he was the CEO of, of, you know, Lightstorm Entertainment and one of the founders of Digital Domain. And um uh, you, you know, this is that was kind of my point of the thesis at the time was the was the fact that uh, um, not only was he a you know a good storyteller and a good filmmaker, but um, he actually you know much like George Lucas does in many ways as well. But you know, as a businessman, he's developed the industry and sort of changed the way that we films are made and that we watch films and oh, i'm sure we're digging into more of this as, as, oh, as we go oh, along yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh and the other thing i had to do there was um uh an exam that we had to sit as well and it asked us to talk about uh how technology had um had changed things in the market and i actually am um, i mean sadly i don't have a copy of this anywhere because it's back in the day when we used to have to hand write these in exams but i uh, i wrote about um because i'd done a lot of study on the making of of terminator 2 and um wrote about some of that process and how it was absolutely used for storytelling rather than just for technology's sake and uh, i got an a in that so i got you know like a distinction for that mm. particular piece which i wish i had but you know they took them and you never got them back you only got a grade back and i was like bloody hell i sat for two hours in an examination hall busting my ass to do this damn thing <laughs> and i haven't even got it to, to read back but there you go um but yeah so so for, for me um you know he He's been pretty important, as I said, a lot like we, we wax lyrical about Spielberg um, back on the on the last S. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I like his I like his style. I like his attention to detail. Um, you, you know, you and I bring up in practically every podcast. I know our, our love of the film uh, Aliens. And uh, what, what, one of the things that that always blew me away with that and it's something that annoyed me about what followed because they never did this was 
uh, at the beginning, when when the salvage team find Ripley in you know in the suspended animation, um, his attention to detail is such that in the doorway there is actually the harpoon gun stuck at the bottom of the doorway. <laughs> and I mean, it's little things like that. I'm like, man, this is awesome. You know, he's he's kept the continuity there with his attention to detail. So, yeah, that that that's kind of a potted history of me with him but what, what what about you what about from your side well it's been one of those things where um he he's he's been a filmmaker that's always sort of been part of my life and i know that's a big thing to say but uh for me um the third film i ever saw at the cinema was battle beyond the stars oh right yes <laughs> which of course he was the art director on yes um you know during his sort of stint working for corman and of course he created the the main ship uh now and it's like the first ship to actually have boobs and antlers yeah yeah well, I, I was lucky enough um I, I i did go to a life in pictures that he did um uh a few years back and he actually said which got the audience laughing he said you know he was kind of given this um this job to to create this or design this ship you know that obviously had to be made to a budget and all this and you know Roger Corman being being who he was was you know this we've got the demographics this needs to appeal to the sort of um you know young male audience that likes sci-fi and he said he said well what, what better he, he goes but to get two massive machine guns and put them on a pair of tits <laughs> 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 and have uh, John Boy Walton flying it around. Exactly. <laughs> I've got a big love for Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh, I, I do as well. And yeah. of course, uh, I love the soundtrack because it's by James Horner. That's right. Yes. Of course, who went on to work with Cameron in uh, Aliens and then, then after that, um, uh, Titanic and Avatar. Yes. And it's sadly no longer with us, with which us, is yeah. a huge shame. But uh, yeah. But yeah, you know, one of his absolutely one of his frequent uh, collaborators. But I mean, just to, to to continue my sort of story, so um, I used to have piano lessons uh, at a church at the the community hall there, and um, I would remember there was like a picture uh, cut out of a magazine from Aliens, and it's a picture of uh, Ripley and Newt, and but they had flipped it on its side, so it. It was actually, it looked like they were running, but it's actually them under the bed when the face hugger attacks. And I remember seeing that image for a long time. You know, it's all orange in there. Yes, I, I know the picture. It, it looks, yeah. it does look like they're running. And for a minute you think, mm, there's something slightly odd about it. And then, of course, when you know, you realise it is because it's a side-on uh, picture of yeah. them led down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I always, well, I, I always thought that they had just sort of put the picture because it was a cutout from a magazine that they just put the picture up the wrong way. Um, but the the actual, the first film of his I saw um, was The Terminator. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see it because the trailer for it was on, wrote on the, um, on the rental copy of Robocop. Right. So I'd seen Robocop a lot on, uh, on VHS, on, especially on the rental. And of course they had the advert for The Terminator. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I want to see this. I want to see this. It was an 18. And so it was actually, I I stayed at my cousin's one weekend and he rented it out for me and we sat there and watched it and I was just transfixed. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in secondary school, sort of 
14, 15, I used to hang out with uh, this group of guys and we would talk about Terminator, we'd talk about Aliens and uh, we would talk about all the Arnie films, so like Predator and Commando and we'd be quoting them and yeah. all this stuff, especially like, you know, the the bit when uh, the Terminator walks into the gun shop yeah. and asks for all the weapons. <laughs> we used to be able to do it you know, easy as pie. I mean, if you ask me to do it now, I would struggle <laughs> to, 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 to do it. Uh, but um, it, it's funny, Simon, to think that um, you, you and I, we, we only like met about five or six years ago or whatever it was, but um, uh, we didn't know each other at all before that. But it's so funny when I hear these stories that, that our upbringing <laughs> sounds so similar. <laughs> they really do. Because <laughs> uh, it was just the same here. <laughs> Did you did you go to a Catholic school then? I didn't go to a Catholic school. No, oh, no, right. no, no. I'm 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 just talking about the whole movies thing. <laughs> oh, okay. So you never got the experience of being taught by nuns then? No, I didn't. And uh, I know I know you and religion will uh, will we'll move away from that. But I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, it's... step away from the religion. Exactly. Step away. Exactly. But it's just one of those ways of showing again that that, that everything mm. is connected. You know, um, it, it it's it's very interesting. You know these these stories that come up and you and you sort of realize mm. that every every movie somehow is connected to another movie um and uh well, in fact on that subject um i need to say this a, a little bit of i got a bit of feedback from some friends and uh um it was re- regarding our last uh podcast which was on catherine bigelow so again sort of connected oh, okay. but so, so the comment i got was that we um we we made it sound a little bit like Catherine Bigelow owed her success to James Cameron. And I, I said, well, that was not what we were meant to, that was not how it was meant to come across mm. at all. So I want to on the record now state that, that even though there's some connections there and maybe we did wax lyrical about Cameron before this podcast, but, um, uh, you, you, you know, um, certainly didn't want to take anything away from uh, from Catherine Bigelow and and just generally with these podcasts I mean they are they are very personal to us I mean we try and sort of straddle that line about bringing our experience and what's personal about it along with a bit of plot and a bit of production and a bit of you know thematic stuff uh, but obviously we can't you know I've I've had hours and hours of conversations about stuff and we can never get it all in the uh in the podcast like i realized you know <laughs> this is like true with the matrix there were loads of things we never went into about that obviously strange days we, we never talked about any of the you know the william gibson influences or how it sort of shapes society today with oculus rift and virtual reality and things of that nature but it, it is just it's just difficult we just try and make it as as hopefully interesting to the listener as possible possible but of course it is a memory lane thing for us as well <laughs> yeah oh yeah i mean it's there's, there's so many sort of uh, rabbit holes we could uh, dive down to uh, when when you're talking about these films, because um, usually they are uh, a lot of them are multifaceted. Oh, you very could, much. You could, yeah, this whole you could, you know, talk from a a point of view of like uh, fan theory or films that you know things that influenced them and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know, um, 
we don't want the shows to go too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're feature length as it is. They're feature films. And That's themselves. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you know, this is why we love it. This is why we talk about these things. And and I'm certainly, um, you know, James Cameron was 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 definitely one of those um, that was in, influential for me. Definitely, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, he tells one really. You know, I like to talk about directors' commentaries. Mm -hmm. He tells one really inspirational story right at the beginning of the aliens uh audio commentary and it's about writing actually and it, it's I, i'm, I'm going to share it because it always kind of made me uh you, you know feel really good about the, the writing process and the development process and he was basically saying uh our power phrase but he was he was he was um saying that at the time uh he was writing aliens was was obviously uh it was it was before he went into production on on Terminator, and he, you know at the time he he was poor and he was like crashing on a friend's sofa in L.A. Um, you, you know and, and trying to get work and basically he he'd, he'd got commissioned to do the um, Aliens script at the time. He wasn't originally attached to direct as well. It was just as a script writer. He had also been commissioned to do Rambo First Blood Part Two before it went over to Stallone to finish. And he was obviously writing Terminator to try and get that whole thing off the ground. And he said he had deadlines with all of this stuff that he had to get in. So he said what he did was basically he worked out when the deadlines were he he approximated that each script would be around if you do you know it's not an exact science but around 120 pages per script so he said you know he had like 360 pages to write and um a certain amount of time so he worked out how many waking hours he had and he basically put on a big pot of coffee and just plowed through it and i just when i heard that i was like yeah that is so inspirational because you know we all struggle with the writing process and get that block, don't we, occasionally? And uh, I always think about that when I'm writing. I always have that little story in my head. So there you go. I've shared it for everyone. You don't need to listen to the aliens commentary, but I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, also there's a couple of things as well. Was that um, he didn't finish the alien script because um, right. he he was writing it while he was waiting for. Um, uh, Schwarzenegger to become available for the Terminator because Dino De Laurentiis had him under contract to do Conan the Destroyer. That's right. So he he had to wait for Arnold to be finished that before he could start production on his film. And so he got the writing um, assignment to do Aliens. So he didn't finish it. But because Fox loved it so much, they were willing to wait until he finished doing the terminator and they said if the terminator was a hit he could direct it and the rest is history exactly and you would not get that today no that would never happen today no and i mean you, you know I, I remember even at film school when i did my my uh, presentation on this I got, I got a little bit of jib from some of the students because you know there were ones that were talking about you know um French New Wave and Fellini and, you know, all, all of these sort of things. And they were like, oh, you're talking about, you know, Cameron, you know, uh, very commercial and all this sort of thing. And uh, at the time, Titanic hadn't come out. And I remember they all kind of said, oh, it's going to sink. It's going to, you know, it's going to do really badly. And, you know, nobody's going to want to see that. And then and then it went on to win Academy Awards. 
Yeah, but it, it didn't help that uh, Kate Winslet actually came out and said how horrid an experience it was. Ah, well, she, yes. I remember she. I remember she came out in the press and was just saying how what a horrible time they had, and um, and of course the press jumped on that and it's like, oh, Titanic, it's gonna be a sinker. Mm. And of course, it was the biggest grossing film of all time. Yeah. Well, lovely as Kate is, let's be honest, she hasn't done bad off of the back of that film, has she? <laughs> no, she's not. No, she's not. So, yeah, it's interesting. But, uh, I, you know, I, know, I know people who really don't like him. And I mean, that, that thing you're talking about there, he, he does have a... Um, uh, a reputation, which I'm sure, again, we'll, we'll dig into as as we go through this. Oh yes, uh, there's there's the famous T-shirt, isn't there? James Cameron is a hands-on director. I know, I've got the bruises. <laughs> but I mean, we've seen making of documentaries, and you can see that he has he he doesn't suffer fools. No. And the thing is, he because he's done so many of these jobs, he has. He has a lot of knowledge about it. So when he sees somebody who's doing it wrong, who should know what they're doing, he is going to have a go at them. Yeah. Also, the fact I don't think he, you know, liked the uh, the British way of, of doing things back in the 80s when he was making Aliens over here because, you know, the whole thing with the um, the tea trolley. No, I, I, absolutely. He's got it. He, ha he has a very, he's very passionate and has a very strong work ethic and um i i think you know you look at the results of his work and and mm. you know he's he's a very good director of course the other thing that he was um you know in that sort of late 80s early 90s well early more early 90s um sort of famous for as well was 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 director's cuts and uh you, you know not special mm. editions in terms of changing things but special editions in terms of adding things <laughs> Right, here's a question for you. Uh, what do you normally prefer? Do you prefer the theatrical cut of his films or do you prefer the extended cuts? Right, well, that's interesting because I'm sure we're going to get into... It depends on the film. Generally. Generally, I prefer the theatrical cuts, if I'm honest, because... Uh, yeah, same here. I, I just find that they're... Um, he, 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 one of the criticisms, I'd say, of him is he can sometimes with pacing tend to get bogged down in things and the theatrical cuts which obviously are done more for commercial reasons uh but they're usually a lot tighter and and, and work a lot better and, and and you know still get the story across well um however i'm always keen to watch the special editions as well just to get certain things fleshed out slightly more and uh, and and you know characterization i mean the the, the good thing is at least when they release them, you get all, both or all versions rather than it sort yes. of, uh, yeah. deleting the original version, which uh, that's a whole other podcast, but there you go. Um, <laughs> and, of, and of course, the, the, the other thing he's well known for, which, which I really appreciate, are um, his documentaries. And I, I think it's really cool when you can sort of mix your passions, when people have multiple passions mm. and they're able to mix them. And uh, you know he's been very fortunate enough because of his success as a as a filmmaker and as a businessman um to be able to uh, to do that and explore other things that he's interested in outside of the uh, the, the film world and and often often dealing with a lot of the same themes that he uses in his um fictional work but uh but but you know um 
I think all of that's quite impressive also. Well, I think that comes from the back of Titanic because um, he actually did dives down to the to Titanic and they actually used that crew, that the Russian crew, to actually film all that stuff at the beginning of the film. That's right. And so he, he went back and he did Ghost of the Abyss and then also did other uh, deep sea diving with Aliens of the Deep. Mm-hmm. So... You know, underwater expeditions was very much a, um, you know, a big thing. Did you ever see, um, it was on Channel 4, when Tony Robinson went down to the Titanic with James Cameron. It was like the most bizarrest (laughs) pairing you could ever imagine. It would have been like Blackadder and Baldrick all over again. I have a cunning plan. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it, I, I, uh, it was it was weird. It really was weird. I've not seen that. I'd actually like to. That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell Cameron was kind of a bit miffed at it first, and he was kind of tolerating it. But you could tell he wasn't really into having this other crew there. You know, it's fair to say a bit of an adventurer as well. And um, this is the thing, you know, he is he is hard or he, he has been known and have a reputation to be hard on his cast and crew. But at the same time, nobody on any shoot appears to work harder than he does. And, um, yeah. you know, I think that's what any good film director should be the hardest working person on that production, you know, Um so, you know, my hat's off to him there, but uh, I'd love to see that. I, w- I wonder that, that, in fact, South Park do a, obviously South Park take the piss out of absolutely everyone, <laughs> including Cameron. And it, it does make me laugh because um, in it, he, he's, uh, he's, he's, he has a ship called the um, HMS James Cameron, or the USS James Cameron that he goes around on and all of his crew hate him. <laughs> which I think which I always find quite amusing. And he always said, we do, Cameron does, because Cameron is James Cameron. It's <laughs> 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 so bizarre. You know what I watched today on, on BC2? I saw the Kane mutiny. Oh, right. Okay. How bizarre is that? <laughs> that just reminds me of. <laughs> Imagine it, James Cameron is that's the captain of the ship. Yeah, I think to be fair, he has a sense of humour about himself as well, even though he can be a hard ass, you know. But um, but I don't know. As I said, I, I'd I'd love to meet him, love to work with him. Um, yeah, very very interesting. But uh, which lots to delve into. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think he's mellowed out a lot since. Because um, you remember, when he did Aliens, none of the crew had heard of him. Exactly. They were just like a couple of Americans over here. And it was the same with Lucas on Star Wars. I mean, the British crews, you know, really didn't give a toss, to tell the truth. Uh, you know, because to them, you know, it was just a job. It was just, you know, I mean, I'm not saying, oh, they, they weren't giving it their all. They were. But they... They didn't feel like they were working with somebody who was well known. Yeah. So when you come to the likes of post Titanic, where you know where he famously you know said at the Oscars, "I'm king of the world," well, everybody then knew who Cameron was. Mm. You know, his reputation had been built up to like that was the pinnacle of it. Yeah. And it's kind of you know it, it, he's kind of shied away from things because you know 
like eight years later that he made his next film after Titanic, which was Avatar. Mm-hmm. Which to think that, you know, the gaps between his films were usually about three or four years. And then suddenly, you know, you've got this eight year gap. Yeah, well, I mean, that's sort of when he went off to do his docus, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, also as well with Avatar, because he had to develop the um, the technology for that. But, you know, the way things are going, we're looking at seeing his next film as a director in, you know, the gap being nine years, because it's supposedly Avatar 2 is coming out in 2018. Indeed, yes. And then we've got to sit through three more films after that. Seems there's <laughs> going to be five Avatar films. <laughs> Yes, well, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, get into it then and start with Keith. What is your pick for Movie Heaven? Well, actually, uh, and sorry that I'm sort of bringing this up now and I never mentioned this before we started, but I'm wondering whether maybe we should reverse the order and whether you should go first. And the reason I'm saying that is... There are certain things in mind that I don't want to steal the thunder away from you, if you like. So (laughs) there are things in my pick that are a result of the film that you're going to talk about. So I think maybe we're best doing it in the other order this week and and you going first, if I may. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, all right. Uh, Seems I'm going first. All right, well... Uh, <laughs> you don't have to, uh, it's just a suggestion. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's too late now, I'm going to start. <laughs> okay. <laughs> too late, can't take it back. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I remember seeing a advert for my pick on, the, uh, on like a VHS rental, and it starts off with a picture of a uh, nuclear reactor filling up... and. Then you see there's a, a base in it, and then you start seeing water being filled up, and it talks about one of the hardest shoots ever, and then it kicks into the trailer, and of course my film is my pick is the Abyss. Now I missed it at the cinema. Me too. At the time, there seems to be a whole series of these kind of monsters underwater films. So you had this, you had uh, Deep Star Six. Uh, and Leviathan. I know there's another one, but I can't remember what it's called. But there, I remember there was those those three films where they all were about these sort of underwater drilling platforms and um, something would happen. But of course, this was the this was the best one because Leviathan was really just an alien ripoff, which had an interesting idea for a creature. But when you saw it, finally, it was a bit shit. <laughs> yes. It was really when you finally saw the damn thing, it looked really shit. Yeah. Now I remember. Yeah. 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 And that's the fact the, the way it took it took Ernie Hudson out was just that was appalling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you know, Peter Weller was good in it. <laughs> Indeed. In, in, Richard Krenner, wasn't it, as well? Was it Richard Krenner? Yes, right, yeah. <laughs> well, it was directed by the same guy who did First Blood. So. Oh, there you go. But the thing was with with these films was they kind of cheated the underwater stuff. With Leviathan, they actually used smoke and uh, to get the actors sort of walking in slow motion to give the eye the impression of being underwater. It, 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 if you didn't know that, it works. But 
James Cameron being James Cameron, <laughs> he had to take it to the extreme and he wanted to film this for real underwater. Now, um, if you've seen the documentary about the making of the, the abyss, um, it's it's a it's a great documentary, but it, it goes into great depth why this shoot was the hardest shoot ever. And it was for the pure fact that they actually they filled this um this nuclear reactor that you know it, it got built but it was never used and they put us um like a a drilling underwater drilling platform down there and they you know they filled this thing completely and you know they were actually filming underwater with submersibles and uh these sort of rvs as well and all these sort of toys and all these sort of you know and they were you know doing it for real in a controlled environment and it's just it's a it's amazing to think because it's it's this thing about water and films they don't mix very well i mean water world went way over budget because they actually filmed out on the sea mm -hmm. and that whole shanty town they built you know on, on that sank like twice yeah and so the cost of, you know, dredging it up out of the water again and, you know, draining it all out was expensive. Yeah. But, but I mean, the thing is, the, the result of, of this film, it makes it a really tense thriller. That, and it's, it's a film that I think is not kind of, you've not seen anything like it since, really. I mean, the look of it as well. I mean, it's very, Cameron loves his blues. He he loves the color blue, especially when it comes to lighting. Yeah, and he he uses that a lot in his films. And it, of course, being underwater, <laughs> you're going to get a lot of it. So, for those who don't know the story, it's about um, a um, a submarine, a U.S. submarine um, crashes underwater, and this uh, drilling platform is nearby, and they they they're the, they're the closest to the the crash site and so they so they go there with a, a bunch of navy seals to um for, for to search for survivors but of course there's a storm above that's making you know making the whole deal you know much more uh, hazardous and of course they then have an encounter with a you know underwater alien or their vehicles or whatever it is it slowly builds up i mean this this is one of the things i love about cameron as a as a storyteller teller is that he builds things up so you you see a little you know you see it bit by bit everything sort of gets bigger and bigger and bigger and everything feeds into itself as well so these these aliens are kind of they're causing mischief about the whole sort of you know, are you some nuclear weapons and stuff? And of course, you don't learn that from the theatrical uh, version of this film because it, it it seems to be more of a case that uh, the the crashing of the sub was more of an accident than a actual doing things on purpose. That's right. The director's cut. It seems to be more uh, purposeful. Yeah, I mean that that's one of the things. While you mentioned that, um, your question to me earlier about. Did I prefer the, mm. the director's cuts or the theatrical? Um, the one exception is actually The Abyss. In, in the case of The Abyss, I think that um, 
you, you know, you, you have a more complete story with the, with the special edition mm. um, than you do with the theatrical version because, you know, you actually get an explanation as to what these aliens are doing. And, and it, it, when you go back and then watch the theatrical again, it does actually feel like there's an act missing. You, you, you know, it doesn't feel quite so right. So even though the first time I saw it was the theatrical and I enjoyed it, um, I did go and obviously they did do a re-release with the special edition. And that was the first time I saw it on the big screen. And, um, you, you know, I do think that that's a better film, in my opinion. Well, yeah. And for two reasons, uh, the first being that um, you, you see these um, underwater aliens sort of judging us. And they actually put into action, you know, an event that would actually wipe us off the face of the earth. But at the time, the effects wasn't there to actually do the giant wave effects. So they actually went back and filmed it for the, the special edition. Oh, did they? Okay, I didn't know that. And also as well is that Cameron had... Uh, a clause in his contract that he could have final cut if he brought in under two hours and 10 minutes. That's right. Yeah. Hence why a lot of his earlier work is un is about two hours and 10 minutes long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it is weird that aliens, the abyss and Terminator two are two hours, and 10 minutes long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yet his um, director cuts are like two and a half hours. Yeah. Or more. <laughs> yeah or more yeah but no i'm gonna i was gonna say also that um one of the things i love about the special edition is that you know what i was explaining uh complaining about about k19 mm -hmm. the widow maker that we had no kind of concepts of what was happening in the rest of the world well with the director's cut you see a lot more of the news footage and you see that sort of tensions are rising between america and russia over this incident so it's not so isolated as it was in the uh, theatrical version. In the theatrical version, you you got no sense of what was going on outside the world. And then, of course, the ending makes it look like the aliens were actually E.T. And they were, you know, they were nice. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> nice aliens. But yeah, you, so you get this real sense of there being this extra level of of danger going on it, it makes it for a, a lot more tenser than it is i mean the acting in it's great oh very much so yeah the best acting in any of his films i'm gonna go out and limb i'm gonna say it's the best acting i mean you've got ed harris you've got mary elizabeth monster antonia uh i think this role and uh, ringo was one of Michael Bean's best. Mm -hmm. Michael Bean makes a great bad guy. Coffee. To think that, you know, he plays the hero in the Terminator and Aliens and in the Abyss. He he plays a really nasty bad guy. You would never think because he's always the sort of the nice guy. I mean, even though in the Terminator he had a bit of an edge to him, he still was, you know, if he turned around to you and say, come with me if you want to live, you go, oh, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you wouldn't sort of, you know, you wouldn't be uh, hanging around going, well, I don't know if I trust this guy, but when he plays coffee in uh, in the abyss, he's like, he is a nasty piece of work. Yeah. You know? And I know he's suffering from... Um, High pressure nervous syndrome. That's it, yeah. yeah. 
So, but I mean, it's also kind of like the pressure of being in command. Yes. I mean, see, it's it's one of these stories where if um, if the the military weren't so paranoid, things would have been all right actually. Because um, what sort of isolates the the crew of the um, the drilling platform is the fact that. Um, one of these creatures is seen when they're searching the sub for survivors. And um, Mary Liz- Elizabeth Manstrontonia's character sort of catches a glimpse of it. And so they think it's like a Russian sub. The military's response is, well, you know, we have to get a warhead, bring it on board. And if needs be, we'll put the, the warhead back in and we'll just destroy the sub. The sub. And so they go on this at the point where they actually need to disconnect the the rig from their sort of base ship above. And by the time they come back um, with uh, the the craft's called Flatbed, they're submersible, uh, the storm is at its worst, so they cannot disconnect. And then, of course, the, the crane then crashes into the sea and nearly drags them over into the abyss. Which that whole scene is really well done. That whole winch and mm, crane scene, yeah. um, particularly when it sort of goes off the edge and then they see all the cable unraveling and they know they're going to get pulled pulled forward. I mean, I think he does that beautifully, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's done so well because you, you, you can hear the, 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 the sonar and you can hear it's, 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 you hear it banging on them and you think the crane is actually going to hit them and it doesn't it just it crashes outside and you, you see all the actors go Whoa! you know oh thank god for that but then you just see the crane suddenly tip over and then <laughs> start dragging them down and um yeah the the the, the drownings in this is just horrible mm. you see the guys in their um in their cabin drowning that is just horrible but this is the thing. This is one of the reasons why I love his storytelling. So little things have, uh, you know, make a big difference. So Ed Harris, who plays Bud, the foreman, um, he's divorced from uh, Mary Elizabeth Manstrantonia's character. Is it Lindsay? Uh, that's a good question. What's her name in it? Um, actually, yeah, yes, Dr. Lindsay Bringman. Yeah, so Lindsay. They have an argument when she comes on board. And uh, he throws his ring away and it, he decides, no, no, I'm going to keep it. And that ring saves him when the doors are closing. Yes. It's the thing that stops the door closing completely on it. Yeah. The other thing I like, this is back to a bit of camera and attention to detail, is for the remainder of that film, his hand is covered in blue dye for the, for the rest of it. Uh, you know, and it's little things yeah. like that that another director might just you know, ignore and it'd be clean the next scene. But this, you know, everything yeah, follows on yeah. with consequences. And uh, yeah, it's got the blue dye from the toilet pan <laughs> over his hand, which I think is great. Right. <laughs> I, I want to address, I want to address the one flaw I think this film has. And the fact is that Lindsay is referred to as a bitch. And there is not one time in this film where I think she's an actual bitch. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. She's very likable. And, uh, She's a strong character, but she's not a bitch. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, there's nothing she does that's that's a that makes her like a, to be a bitch. Really, I mean, she's very talkative, you know, 
as coffee does say at one point i would always wanted to do this to you and you've you hear this ripping now, and he just puts some tape over him. <laughs> Again, beautifully done. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but there was there was nothing in there. It was like, well, I don't like this character. No, I agree. I actually heard that her character is based on Gail Anne Hurd. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. <laughs> Who, of course, was producer of this and uh, and spouse to to James at the time, right? <laughs> um, I think they were actually. Well, by the end of this film, they were divorced. Oh, right. Because this is this is the last film she actually produced with him. She was the executive producer on Terminator 2, but this was the last film she actually produced for him. Right. So this film actually kind of marked the end of that relationship. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it is a great movie. And um, I, I watched it again uh, yesterday, in fact. Um, I watched the special edition version uh, before this. And... Uh, you know, I have to say, um, you know, I've I've heard some people often criticise Cameron, saying that you know he 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 doesn't do sort of um, emotional uh, connections with characters well, and I, I disagree completely because uh, the scene where the the wonderful scene where um, and the controversial scene where uh, uh, Lindsay drowns and uh, Bud, um, you, you know, has to give her CPR to, 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 to bring her back. That actually brought me to tears, even though I knew what was mm. going to happen. I was watching it on my own and I, I'm a grown man and I was, I was actually in tears watching that. Um, and it's because it's so powerful. Can I ask, what was controversial about that scene? Well, um, if you watch, I mean, again, I watched the uh, Under Pressure, the documentary that you mentioned, and and if there's any listeners out there that you know you know are interested in filmmaking, this is a really good documentary to watch because it doesn't pull any punches and it does show you how um, difficult this shoot was. Uh, obviously, James Cameron's brother develop the technology to make it possible to do this shoot in terms of um you know underwater communications um and uh you know ed harris talks about that scene um and the amount of times that they had to do it and that uh mary elizabeth master antonio got very upset with 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 james cameron um during it and what is interesting is most of the cast and crew are interviewed in that documentary, but she does not appear anywhere in the documentary. So, um, uh, you, you know, I don't know whether those stories, uh, you know, about her, her and him really falling out um, are true or not. Uh, interestingly, they actually do parody it in Limitless, the TV series that she's one of the regulars in, and they do as a joke. Uh, parody that scene in one of the uh, in one of the characters' imaginary scenarios. So, um, but but yeah, interesting. But a great documentary. Sorry, just that you used the word controversial because to the to a viewer, nobody knew that. Oh no, nobody exactly. knew that until we saw the documentary. Yeah, sorry, I'm talking about just the production. Sorry, not not the not the finish. The finished product's wonderful. Yeah, the the, the way you made it sound like it was a, a controversial scene because there is a controversial scene in the film that's cut for the uk release and that is with the rat oh yes yes because at the beginning they at the beginning they show um the rat breathing the um the sort of liquid air mm -hmm. but it's you know breathing liquid 
and they actually put the rat into the liquid and it actually breathed and they you know they they drained the the rat's lungs of the liquid and he was fine afterwards but in this country it's cut yeah that's why i got the u.s version <laughs> well i got the u.s version because uh, this was at the beginning of dvd and the uk copies of films was terrible for extras yes so so the thing was the u.s version you got the theatrical you got the director's cut and you got all these extra features you know you got like the laser disc extras and you got this wonderful making of documentary over here you just got like the theatrical version absolutely and that special edition didn't didn't come out until years later so i had to get the the u.s version but i have to say I cannot understand why this film's not out on Blu-ray. I want to see this film in HD because this would look amazing. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. There's no Blu-ray copy. I know. I know. Also, the other thing is um, because this is one of the earlier uh, DVD releases, um, the actual transfer on the DVD is not actually an anamorphic transfer. So even though it's 235 to one letterbox, it's not... It doesn't uh, enhance on, on TVs for anamorphic. So, again, it's crying out for a really good Blu-ray. Come on, Fox, get your act together. <laughs> I can't understand it. I mean, even the Firefans had a great Blu-ray come out of it. <laughs> <laughs> the Firefan, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, The Abyss, which, you know, okay... It, it made money, a not amazing amount of money because it costs so much to make. But, it, you know, it still made money. So And people want to see it. People want to see, you know, Cameron's films on Blu-ray. Yeah. I don't know. It was, they need to pull their, their thumb out and, you know, get this out on Blu-ray. Yeah. It's crazy. There is, there's no Blu-ray of this. Hmm. Absolutely crazy. It is bizarre. It is bizarre indeed, yeah. Yeah, because it's a film that still stands up to this day. And yes, this is the one of the first films to sort of introduce CGI. I mean, I would say the very first one, uh, I'm not quite sure if it's Tron or The Adventures of Young Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, they did the stained glass thing in, in, um, in Young Sherlock Holmes. And some of the kind of graphics in uh tron was actually computer generated although surprisingly not many <laughs> i mean also you had the last starfire but that was obviously computer graphics but then it works because that was a a film about a kid who plays a video game and then in real life is thrust into that game so you know it, it works for that but this is this is what one of the first films where they really did a good job of combining CGI with with people to to get a realistic, you know, um, image. You know, it was because it was it's the water tentacle that comes out and uh, sort of it goes through the the sort of the uh, drilling platform. And it's funny to sort of see the behind the scenes stuff because it was just like an old piece of venting that they had yes. for an eye line for the, the actors. And they did an amazing job because 
this thing looked absolutely hilarious and yet they were acting as if it was like you know the most amazing thing they ever saw was it one well, i think it was the actress who played one night she was like we had to stand there and go ooh ah in front of this piece of pipe <laughs> <laughs> but, but i mean it, it does work really well and and ilm did a great job yeah. with the uh, the whole water tentacle um segment and uh um, you, you know, and again, uh, hats off to the good actors that you had in this film, because like you said, um, you absolutely believe that they're looking at this and, and that they're blown away by it. And uh, like, like you said, it's, it was a grip holding a, uh, a piece of old pipe or something, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I also, I mean, the action in this was really good. I mean, the whole bit where... What's happened is that um, Lindsay wants to prove that these aliens exist because she's seen one up close and personal. And um, the guy called Hippie, he programs one of the RVs to go down there and take pictures. And Coffee, what he does is he straps a, the nuclear warhead to it. You know, he wants to destroy them. He sees them as a threat. And so what happens is it, it, it you know, it's, it, it becomes this really long sort of action sequence made of different parts. So it starts off with the seals taking over and sort of putting the rest of the crew, you know, imprisoned. And then Coffee goes, makes his way to the moon pool where they launch all the uh, submersibles from. And he's locked the door. So Bud and... The other uh, catfish have to swim without any breathing gear up to the moon pool so they can open the uh, one of the bulkheads so they can get in. The others can get in. And, of course, Bud decides to take on Coffee, which oh, it's, it, he does make one of the most stupidest moves ever. He's got a piece of pipe. The guy's got his back to him. He could have, you know... If he had swung, he could have knocked him out and this the, the rest of it wouldn't have happened. It would have been all right, but he tries to go for their gun. Yeah, but one of the things I kind of like about that, though, I know what you're saying, but um, one of the things that's great about Ed Harris's character, Bud, in this is he is, he is by no means, um, uh, you know, an action hero in any way. I mean, he, he becomes it as the film goes on, but... At the beginning, I mean, one of the bits when they're having the confrontation with Coffee much earlier in the film, he doesn't know what to do to the point that he actually pulls the alarm and panics because he can't deal with the confrontation. So I think actually it does sort of suit his character. Actually, no, I think you've, you've interpreted that wrong. Because he pulls that alarm, not just because he doesn't know what to do, but he wants to... Uh, diffuse the situation because he knows it's going to lead to you know confrontation and maybe a fight and he is the foreman of that you know drilling platform he's the guy that makes sure that everybody lives you know he's he's re responsible for everybody so he makes the best call he pulls the alarm he gets everybody in there and he knows that coffee isn't going to do anything when there's all these people about. yeah yeah no no i, I understand so I it's understand. not out of fit well no i i think it's a, I, I think it's more complicated than that i actually think if you watch his performance very carefully right i think it's more 
more nuanced than that. So I, th I think, yes, you're absolutely right. That is the reason he does it. And he states at the beginning, you know, when the military contact them uh, in the first place, that, you know, he's responsible for everybody on that platform and his, his tight knit crew and all this sort of thing. But um, throughout that film, until, until the end, when he has to sort of start stepping up by, you know, swimming, swimming down between the... Um, uh, you, you know the 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 platform and 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 the other side of it. Um, he he very much is. You you can tell he he's just he is not an action man. He's not a uh, he's not confrontational. And I I I think I think that's one of the things. And I agree with you entirely when you say that out of all of Cameron's work, this is probably um, the best example of 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 acting throughout all of his work, because I really do think that that the actors in this, and particularly Ed Harris, but 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 across the board, the whole ensemble in this, is up to an incredibly good standard. And I think, um, you, you know, not only have you got Cameron's wonderful directing chops around this, but you've also got some really, really stand-up, nuanced, three-dimensional performances that work really well in this piece. So just sort of carry on with what i'm saying so about what happens so that you have the fight in the uh moon pool where coffee does overpower him and he, he looks like he has the upper hand until catfish turns up and punches him and there's this lovely line near the beginning when uh hippie's mucking about with him and he tells him to stop and he said they used to call me the hammer. <laughs> and when you see him punch that guy when you see him punch coffee you you can believe he was called the hammer because he goes flying. The, the, <laughs> the sound effect of that punch is so strong. Yeah, it's definitely a nice payoff, isn't it? <laughs> and there's love, lots of lovely payoffs in this film from just lines of dialogue and stuff. So Coffee gets into a flatbed and he, he, get, he gets away. So Bud chases after him in, uh, in, you know, in his uh, diver's you know, apparatus while Lindsay jumps into one of the other submersibles and chases after him. And Bud is able to sort of tie a rope round. Um, it's, it's called Big Geek, isn't it, that RV? That's right. He's able to sort of tie this rope round Big Geek, you know, try and give him some time, stop it going down that trench. And, of course, Coffee sees this and is able to... Well, they, he... he goes after um but but then you get this wonderful submarine chase scene and of course the rope sort of gets un you know he is able to stop little big geek for a little while and then it sort of gets loose and the arm on Lindsay's submarine is able to grab it but coffee smashes into him and of course big geek is then down that trench and of course that's 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 one problem that they have to you know have to sort out but not at this time because they have to have this sort of submarine chase with coffee and of course in the end coffee loses he goes down the trench and you know he has an amazing death when he gets uh, crushed you know when he goes out screaming like a man not like a girl he screams like a man death by implosion yes <laughs> but you know when it comes to it he's like ah you know he, he just faces it head on and then you get 
the the scene with uh, Bud and Lindsay in the submarine as it's slowly filling up and the whole drowning. And as you say, the um, the scene that was tough on the actors when uh, they try and resuscitate her. And then Bud has to go down the trench in the, um, the liquid breathing costume, which looks like an astronaut's uh, suit. You know, it, it's all white. And it's kind of got that sort of puffy um, look to it, like you would get with a spacesuit. And of course, for Ed Harris, that was that was hell because that wasn't breathing liquid. He was he had there was just like pink pink water, and um, you know he, he he was dragged along that trench, you know days upon days, having to hold his breath, and uh, so he to to do all that and act out the scenes is just it's just amazing. I mean that whole bit when he's going down the the trench is so. It's gut wrenching from the fact that you know because he's suffering from these this syndrome you know for for going so deep, and you have Lindsay on the other end talking to him, and he can only communicate by typing. So, you know, he once he gets down there and defuses the bomb, he he hasn't got enough time to come back up. You know, it, it was like a one way trip, and he knew that. And if it wasn't for those aliens being down there, he would have died. But um, I have to say, I, I did. I had a little cry when uh, when he comes back online, when he starts typing again, mm -hmm. and they see it. Yeah. I thought, oh, yeah, that 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 sort of got me. That really did get me. And I mean, the it is weird in the um, when because I'm used to seeing the theatrical cut, so you just that bit. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, Budman's back on air and, you know, and that's about it. Yet in the director's cut, there's a whole message from these aliens saying, you know, we've sent you a message, you know, you better better listen. <laughs> <laughs> I was it Bud puts at the end, but this is just a suggestion. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, I mean, as an overall experience, it works really well and it's like, with characters that you really care for and it just it, it's if one thing builds on top of another on top of another and as i say so you have one action scene where it leads into another action scene which leads into another action scene and then leads into a dramatic scene and then leads to the finale so it, it it's very organic as well mm -hmm. i think that's what what works really well for his films is that we organically reach these action scenes and it's not a case of what we have today where one it's just like well here's an action scene it's finished now and then here's the next one yeah or you know we're just building into the next one it's the, the action there and it serves a purpose and it propels the story and as i say feeds into what happens next well with other action films of the day i don't think they they have the the knack that uh, Cameron has for for that kind of storytelling. Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely with you. I mean, one of the things he does very well, he does it great in this film. He also, it's, it's great in Aliens as well, is he, he's really good at uh, filming chaos, you know, where you've got one problem mm. and it's yeah. leading into another problem and, you know, it leads into an action scene and all this sort of thing. But the good thing is, he does it with with lots of kinetic energy, but at the same time, you can still follow it. 
it's not like a lot of action directors yeah. nowadays that that it's really hard to follow the action. Something Cameron's really good at is 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 doing action that you yeah. can follow and chaos and and mixing it with drama, which um you, you know is is what good filmmaking is. So yeah, it's fabulous. Uh, the Abyss is a great choice. He also gives you a chance to breathe in between scenes as well. Yeah. So I mean uh, it, that last bit, which I sort of just described. I mean, you still have a moment, a break before it sort of kicks into gear again. So it, it, you 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 have these moments to sort of take a breath and go right. Let's get ready for the next bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, get ready to hold your breath because we're we're diving in again. No, I I I think the abyss doesn't always get the the the, the credit that it deserves when um when people talk about Cameron's work. I mean, I know it's a very successful yeah. film, et cetera, yeah. but, um, uh, you, you know, in terms of an all round package that's mixing action with uh, special effects, with visual effects, with stunts and with um, good quality drama and acting, this, this ticks all of the boxes. And, um, when you think that he wrote this uh, as well as directed it and, you know, developed all of this technology in order to um, to be able to make this possible, uh, it does really hold up with this film and works really well. So uh, good choice. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you my theory why it has it's not as memorable uh, amongst fans as, say, his other work. And it's it is down to the ending of the theatrical cut. It is... It's kind of out of place with the rest of the film. Now, when I saw this when I was younger, I didn't think twice about it, really. But when you look back at, at this film with older eyes, at the theatrical cut, it does kind of seem weird that the aliens in that didn't kind of have any purpose, really. <laughs> yeah. Because it just seemed that every, it just seemed that their technology was causing these accidents. Because the whole thing with their technology is that when they come into contact with us. Um, there's always power outages. Mm -hmm. We always they always lose power. Hence, why what happened with the submarine crash. But with the director's cut, there seems to be a lot more purpose to that. So, if you had taken the ending of the director's cut and put that onto the theatrical cut instead of the kind of ET ending, I think uh, uh, people would think more more highly of it than they do now. But I mean, also the fact that. As I say, there's no Blu-ray copy of this. There's not a good copy of this film out there. So, you know, it it, it needs that as well. All his other films have great, you know, Blu-ray DVD releases, you know, filled to the gills with making behind the scenes and, you know, all cuts. And, and yet this one, at the moment, we have a DVD that's just, a, you know, a four by three letter box version. So I think that's that's kind of like why, you know, it's not as in high regard as the, the rest of his work because just doesn't seem to be a good version of it out there at the moment. Mm. Come on, Fox, sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, Keith, uh, I'll ask again, what is your pick for movie heaven? <laughs> okay, well, for, for movie heaven, you know, always tricky with Cameron because I like all of his films, but I um, I picked uh, from 1991 Terminator 2, um, which I've already mentioned. I I, um, I used as, as as one of my essays while at film school. Um, 
absolutely love this film. Um, in some respects, it, it's funny. I, I kind of, in some in some ways, I almost like prefer the original Terminator. However, this is 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 the film that you know Cameron really wanted to make. Um, it, you know, when you think about it, it is kind of storyline wise even though it is a sequel it is also a bit of a a plot retread you know the 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 basic chase film uh of the first one but it just builds on it so much it you know so much more and one of the things that uh you know you know is amazing and set this film apart was the, the 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 breakthrough use of cgi and using the cgi it you know, to, to create a character that you couldn't do any other way, you know, to tell the story. And this is what I think is, is great about this, is it is a really good mix of, you know, live action stunts and special effects mixed with visual effects to uh, accomplish, you know, the T-1000 character, um, mixed with more visual effects to do things like wire removal to have actors like Schwarzenegger actually jump you know on a motorcycle and for it to actually be him and you you actually see it's him um mixed with you know, you know really good can i stop you though are you referring to the bit where he jumps into the um oh in LA, they've got the whole sort of canal system, don't they? The reservoir system, yeah, yeah. And you see him sort of the him his bike jumping off and landing. Yeah, yeah. They 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 absolutely they removed the basically he was on a crane. But they, yeah, it wasn't Arnie though. That was his stunt double, and it's clearly his stunt double. I have to say, this is only this. I I love this film too, but you do you can tell, especially with the Blu-ray. <laughs> when it's their stunt doubles <laughs> or when it's a puppet <laughs> yeah i mean i mean it, it does it, it does have some yeah, yeah. You, you know the other thing i was going to say is the other thing he's mixed well with this film is is the use of um you know obviously stan winston's work with with uh you, you know physical yeah. um special effects as well um you, you know it, it really is the mixture of all of it and works really well, and and for the most part, with with with, with the odd exception, I think even by today's standards, this this holds up really well. I mean, uh, my friend Chris, who who does um, computer generated imagery himself, he he said that you know so, some of it is 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 looking old by today's standards. However, um, you, you know it, it it still tells the story well. You, you know, you believe what you're seeing. And, you know, this really was, I mean, at the time, um, you, you know, as Spielberg admits, you know, we would have no Jurassic Park if it wasn't for Terminator 2. Um, you, you know, this really did, uh, the work that ILM did on this uh, really was groundbreaking and was quite frankly, I mean, I remember when I first saw it, I was so excited because it was just like, nothing I'd seen before and you know it worked completely for the story and um you know you know every everything about this is good the the only thing that's always that's always been in the back of my mind and somewhat bugged me about um Terminator 2 was just from a marketing perspective and the reason I say that is with all the trailers with all the lead up to it with with everything 
you you knew that in this film arnie was going to be the protector yeah arnie was going to be the the the, the... yes however i look at the way cameron has actually shot it and if you look at it and the way it's set up it's done well almost shot for shot identical to the way that he did it in the first terminator film and i think to myself my god wouldn't it have been cool if that bit where John Connor's stuck in the corridor and you've got the 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 T one thousand that at the moment we you know we only know him as like a police officer coming in one direction and Arnie yeah. coming in the other pulling out the gun wouldn't it wouldn't it have been great if when he goes get down that's the first indication that you get that Arnie's not there to kill him I I, I think to myself I almost wish. I could erase my memory of everything that I know about the film <laughs> and watch it and not know that. Cause I think that would be a kick-ass moment in cinema. And, um, you, you know, it's not to take it. The film's still great, but you know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, uh, thankfully they also got to that very quickly. They I mean, did. There, there isn't too much of that because yeah, the, the press for this was immense. I mean, I remember seeing the behind the scenes on, on VHS, actually, yes. I remember that it was just a separate release, didn't they? They had like a thirty-minute making of. They did, but uh, yes, uh, uh, all the press, the press ruined it. Yeah. <laughs> it was like Arnie's back, and this time he's wasn't he? Wasn't it in the trailer? It is, yeah. Didn't it Even say the trailer. he's this time he's back, and this time, yeah, in the trailer he's back, and this time for good. Yeah. Well, what what was really good is they did a um which again is on on the Blu-ray and the DVD etc. They did a really good teaser trailer where you actually saw oh, the yes. terminator being built and then the um the uh uh you know the organic process you, you know um fused with him and 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 it just ended with with Arnold opening his eyes and they were red yeah and and it was just like a really cool yes. teaser trailer but then of course then they brought out the trailers that, that that you know sell the movie and and you know obviously at that point yeah everybody knew that uh, in this one Arnie was the protector <laughs> and he wasn't sent to kill John Connor <laughs> I remember seeing the trailer for this when I I saw Problem Child at the cinema, <laughs> oh, and I think I remember the trailer better than the film. Actually, I enjoyed Problem Child. <laughs> the first one was a lot of fun. Oh my god, we got Problem <laughs> Child on a James Cameron podcast. How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my memory. There you go. Sorry. No, it's cool. I mean, this is back in the back in the day. If you want to see a trailer for a film, you had to go to the cinema to see it. You didn't get. You didn't see it online. You had to go to the cinema to see it. I mean, to think that people went to. They paid money to see a 20th Century Fox film whose name I can't remember just to see the Star Wars Phantom Menace trailer. That's right. That's very true. And they made that film a hit, even though nobody wanted to see the damn film. Most people actually walked out after they saw the trailer. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. You see, that, that that's and that's one of the things actually I'll defend <laughs> and I love about our podcast is the fact that we that we have mm. tangents and it's always good when we do. I love it. <laughs> 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 so that's really cool. Um but yeah, I mean I mean yeah. this 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 film um I remember it was one of the first uh well it wasn't one of the first this that's not true at all but I remember at the time I had you were able to get the 
script books and the making of books and all of those sort of things on this. And, uh, you know, I had all of that stuff, which had, you know, um, uh, production design drawings and, and, and those sort of details, because I was really into this in a big way and, and, and loved it. And I had a friend who had the um, mm. had the laser disc. I, I never really ever did laser disc, but uh, he had the laser disc uh, edition. And uh, I remember going round, and that was like um, uh, probably one of the first commentaries that I ever listened to. But this was obviously back in the day when the commentaries they weren't picture-specific commentaries. They were uh, a selection yeah. of interviews put together by a moderator. Okay. Um, Interestingly, Cameron's first proper to picture commentary was actually on the film that he produced uh, that uh, Steven Soderbergh directed called Solaris, which was a, a reimagining of the Tarkovsky oh. film. Yeah. And um, I remember that on, on the commentary for that, Cameron says at the end, he said, I really enjoyed this commentary. This has been quite fun. It's cool. I might go and do some more. And then they released Terminator 2 on DVD with a brand new commentary track, which was a, a picture-specific commentary. So, um, God, I'm such a geek. Yeah. Sorry, I'm such a geek, but there you go. Um, <laughs> but uh, Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just sort of talking about Terminator 2 special, um, special features and stuff because uh, they did an interview with uh, Cameron talking to uh, Arnie about the making of Terminator 2, and they, would, they were joking. They were going, you know, ah. Uh, the the cost of the sorry I'm trying to do Arnie it's not coming <laughs> off very well but they were saying that the cost of the <laughs> forgive me I usually do it quite well but you know <laughs> get to the chopper <laughs> come with me if you want to leave <laughs> um, they were talking about um, <laughs> that the the cost of the first film was probably how much they spent on the trailers for the second film oh yeah because the the budget was just such a massive leap up and I remember. The, the makings of were just they went into every detail just down to the the wear and tear on Arnie's jacket yeah because they showed you all the different versions and how they age dressed it and because they had all different kinds of bullet holes and damage to it because you know from the very beginning to the end I mean he's wearing the same clothes and that that jacket and oh all these clothes just gets a hell of a beating no absolutely and and and, and if anybody if anybody wants the definitive one uh the blu-ray skynet edition is is the one to get because it basically has all of the material from the laser disc and all of the material from the uh dvd extreme edition and even more stuff so it's got and it's got obviously all the versions of the oh, film okay. as well <laughs> yeah because i've got these um the extreme edition again from the states and this came with like a, a, a metal case that you slid the dvd out of that's right i've got that one <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> see, see? <laughs> i spent a lot of money getting that shipping that oh. in <laughs> just just so i could see all the different versions yeah, the first two terminator films the amount of times i've double triple quadruple dipped in these films yeah. is, is is crazy because i've i had them all on the vhs versions and then the, the various dvd versions and the the blu-rays because you know these these are 
important films for me so um but yes i, I they've, they've certainly had their money's worth out of me not to mention numerous trips to the cinema whenever it's showing as well <laughs> <laughs> well i have to kick myself because i actually owned an ex-rental version of terminator 2 and i don't have it anymore oh right okay it was what when they used to sell them off <laughs> yeah yeah I, I was able to buy an ex-rental version of it um i remember sort of um, I was about seventeen, working in McDonald's, been a, a you know studying at college, and uh, I remember coming back from Margate with my friends and uh, walking to my local video shop, and they said, uh, "I've got a copy here, Terminator 2, 20 quid, X rental." I was like, "Yes, please." <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. But uh, I sold it off when I with the rest of my VHS collection. I'm kind of kicking myself. I didn't keep that one because I think that was the only only video that I had was that was X rental. Ah, all the rest were sort of you know the uh, retail versions. Yeah, yeah, the sell through editions. But then saying that, I I wore that tape out. I watched the film so many times, and um, I mean, I especially loved the openings, uh, the future war sequence because they they again just built upon everything we'd seen from the first film that's right that's right i i want to say this now and i that the fact is that for me there are only two terminator films and it's terminator and terminator 2 and terminator 2 is the definitive ending the rest of it is just crap, <laughs> in my humble opinion because because in those two films cameron was saying that the future was not set. There is no fate but what we make for ourselves. And those films do that. The fact that, you know, that Sarah Connor beat the Terminator. She was a meek waitress, and by the end of it, she's a warrior. The end of this film, they stopped Skynet from happening. They, they actually filmed an ending where that park those swings you see in her dreams when the, you see the judgment day, you see the nuclear bombs going off, which I have to say is still freaky to this day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that imagery of seeing the people on fire and that shockwave coming along and just blowing the skin off them. I mean, it, it, as a visual, it's really impactful. But they stopped it. They were able to stop it from happening. And the other films, they're like, oh, no, no, no. Skynet's going to happen no matter what you do. It's going to be an internet virus. It's going to be an app. It's uh, going to be um, Christian Bell doing his Batman voice. And none of those films had the, the spirit or the originality of the others. And the, the Genesis... That can go and fuck itself because I think it just takes a giant dump on the Cameron films just for nostalgia's sake. Oh, look, we 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 copied the scenes from Terminator. Ooh, that didn't make a good film. If anything, it made it. A f I still can't get my head around that bloody film. How can John Connor be a Terminator and yet exist when his parents haven't slept with each other? That makes no fucking sense. <laughs> God, that time travel, that predestination uh, paradox. Who knows? Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, 
I'm, I'm... Can I just say this quickly, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop my rant. But the thing is, in the original Terminator, it, it was this whole thing that, that it was a loop. That, you know, Kyle Reese went back in time to save Sarah Connor, but also impregnate her so she could give birth to John Connor. And yes, with Terminator 2 changing that, it does cause a problem. But the thing with Genesis is that they cause too many problems. With Terminator 2, it's only one little problem, is the fact that they avert Judgment Day. So it it's just that one problem. With Genesis, you have the whole thing with, well, Sarah and Kyle, they, you know, they don't do anything. And also you have John Connor coming back as a Terminator. And, and, and it's just too many paradoxes. It, it just, it was kind of like, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sort of beating down on the, the guys who wrote the, the, the story, but it did feel like they go, Ooh, what would be cool? What would be really cool? I know John Connor is a Terminator. Nobody would see that one coming. Uh, except the uh, the advertising for it told us it, it was in the poster. <laughs> I mean, the studios really dropped the ball on that release. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, um, I, uh, I, I don't disagree with you on any of this. Um, I... I'm kind of a fan of the franchise from from a sort of nostalgia point of view, but all of the other films, um, they're they're missing essentially the key element, which is James Cameron writing them and James Cameron directing them. Um, you, you know, there are problems with with all of the sequels beyond this one. Um, you, you know, for various reasons, and that's a whole other podcast. And really, I only want to talk about Cameron uh, on this one. Uh, who, who, but you know, the first two films, you know, you know, are the holy grail of of, of Terminator movies, and then all of the other, you know, expanded universe spin-off media, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is is just there. And I think some of it's okay, but but yes, it, none of it lives up to um to the first two movies, obviously. Well, I mean. It's, it's just because that Cameron doesn't own the rights to it anymore. Yes, it is. But the thing is, there's going to. It's getting close to a time when the the rights will revert back to him. So, I hope and I pray that when the rights do revert back to him, that he does something with it that sort of kind of erases everything else that's come after Terminator Two. Yeah. Now that would be good. I mean, yes, that there are. Again, not going to get too much into it, but there's 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 a whole sort of things with rights across the entire Terminator franchise, um, even with the first movie, etc. So, um, yes, it, it's it's been difficult to uh, to extend the stories and whatever because of, of of people who have various um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but various various investments in in the franchise, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you know, Terminator Two. I love the first Terminator. Uh, obviously, he made that with 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 lots of um, restrictions against him, which he didn't have. You know, he had the budget and he had the technology by the time he came to make the second film. Uh, and he does say on one of the commentary tracks that um, originally he had the idea for the shape shifting um, T one thousand character for the first film. 
But at the time, he did a he didn't know how he was going to achieve that uh, technically. But B, um, and we always like to mention films we talk about a lot. Uh, a couple of years earlier, the thing had been out, which obviously involved a, a creature that shifted shapes and stuff. So he was he, he was trying to do something different, plus within the budgets and the technology that he could do. So by the time he came to do T two. Um, you know, he was really sort of able to uh, to make the film that he wanted here. And we say about sequels, I mean, he did kind of do a sequel, uh, or what he considers to be the third film, in so much as his first little experiment with 3D was in the attraction at Universal called Terminator 2 3D Battle Across Time. And I have to admit, when I lived out there, I actually had a card um it's like like a sort of loyalty card and i went and watched that show so many times because it is so cool uh, have you ever seen it i i know of it i never got a chance to see oh. it when i was out in the states i don't think i was anywhere that was showing it but uh yes no i i i, oh, I remember seeing all the stuff about it and the the whole live action element and with the uh, performers on stage jumping into the screen. And... Yeah, it was a total immersive experience. Though the CGI in it, in it was a bit hokey, though, from what I've seen. Especially with um, the big tentacle creature at the end. Yeah, the T1 million, as they called it, which was like a bit of... Yeah, I yeah. mean, that, that was kind yeah. of... There were obviously things that were done for the, the, the sake of it being a, um, uh, a tourist attraction. And, uh, you, you know, obviously he, he managed to get all of the... Um, all of the main cast back and uh, a lot of the crew back to work on this. But I mean, it, you, you know, if, if one was being nitpicky about it, uh, they'd all have to be naked <laughs> because, because he's, he, he's got, he's got them going through time wearing the costumes that they wore in T2. <laughs> but of course it wouldn't be a family friendly show, would it? Yeah, but he's also riding a motorcycle as well, yeah. So <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's not really the third film, but you know what? It was a lot of fun, um, and it was yes. very, very well done. Very well done. So, But of course... Oh, yeah, and a depiction of the future war is better than anything else the other films have ever done. I, I don't know why they, they've never kind of got that same tone and look. I mean, it was really weird when they actually did one of the films in the future war period and they just have machine guns. Yeah. Yeah. They did. They didn't really sort of capture it that well, but, um, but yeah, of course no. the, the other important thing with, with uh, the, the, the tourist attraction was this was the first time that uh, James Cameron worked with, with 3d, which obviously we'll go on to talk about further. I'm sure um, in this podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but, 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 you know, it, it, it is a really fun spin off from the film. Um, it's, it, it was really well done. I think it's a shame that it's, it's not still part of the, uh, the universal attraction, but uh, I, I guess that's what, what happens when you get older and, and people lose the, uh, the interest of those things now, I guess. But, uh, um, but yeah, uh, in terms of sequels and, and other media, there's, there's, there's plenty out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, none of it, none of it li lives up to this film in terms of, uh, uh, plot effects or, or, or any of it really. Um, but again, this is, this is one of those films that's available in, in more than one edition. Um, for, for me personally, I think that the um, theatrical cut of this works just fine. 
uh, although it is very cool to see the uh, the extra stuff with you know like the T one thousand glitching and uh, the bit where they reset mm. the chip in in Arnie's head, which is amazing piece of filmmaking as they did it all with um, with with doubles um, so that they could you know make it look like they were shooting through a mirror without it actually being a mirror. And it was all really, really complicated and really well done and ended up just just uh, being replaced with a line of dialogue saying that his, um, his, his microchip is a learning computer and it worked fine for the story, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing as well, and I did not know this at the time until they made this film, was that Linda Hamilton had a twig. That's right. Yes. In fact, one of the things he does rather well in, in quite a lot of this film is is the use of twins because uh, he, he uses mm. several actors that have twins in order to accomplish yes. that, like the security guard, for example, at the... Um, at the, at the hospital and and all of that stuff. I I remember those guys. They were in they were in Erie Erie Indiana. They were in an episode about um, this mother who keeps her ch- uh, children in uh, Tupperware. And of course, one night the Tupperware is left open. Of course, next day you see them as grown adults, which was uh, I always remember that story. <laughs> Nice, nice. Now, I mean, uh, you, you know, this is one of the things that he does really well. And, and I guess I guess nowadays um, I, I would say probably J.J. Uh, Abrams does this very well um, is is uh, Cameron uses the very latest technology and is always at the, the, the leading edge of that. But at the same time, he uses other filmmaking techniques from the history of cinema as well. So he uses whatever works to tell the story and accomplish the particular effect that he wants and melds this all together to tell the best story. And um, that's that's really, you, you know, I always think that the films that are the best are the films that do that. And, um, uh, you, you know, um, Cameron is definitely one of the uh, what one of one of the leaders it, it, it sort of combining all of those techniques uh, to accomplish it. Yeah, but I would say J.J. Abrahams is not an innovator. Oh, no, not in the way that he is. No. Yeah, I, he uses the latest technology, but he does not invent it. He is not a Lucas and he's definitely not a camera. No. If anything, that's the thing about Abrahams is that his style is copying other people. He can do Spielberg. He can do Lucas. But if you ask what is the Abraham signature apart from lens flare, what is yeah, it? Yeah, no, you're right. Because he's very good at copying other directors. He copies from the best. You know, it's like when you watch Super 8, you go, oh, I'm watching a Spielberg film. He, he copies from the best, that's for sure. Yeah, but he doesn't seem to have a style of his own. Yeah. I mean, it's it's great that he he's, he's a fan of this work and he's very good at, you know, bringing back that kind of filmmaking you know the decision to go mostly practical with star wars was a great one but at the end of the day he's not an innovator he's definitely not a camera yeah because you know i the, he hasn't brought anything to the table which has changed cinema in such a way that cameron has i mean most of his films he pushes the technology as we talked about cgi filming underwater and of course, 3D. No, I mean this is what makes him unique. I think he he's been a big innovator. Yeah, yeah. He he's he's in a bunch of those directors where he really pushes the technology. If it wasn't for Cameron or say Lucas, then 
you know who who knows who would have come along and and pushed that technology to where we have it now but these were the guys who they had the ability to do that they had the will to do that that they were prepared to sort of take a risk and try these different things and you know that now we sort of take for granted in films i mean you imagine it you calico who made terminator 2 and they say i want to make us you know a character that's all in the computer i want to make a silver man that can change shape and stuff you know if it wasn't cameron i don't think you know they would have said well we like the film, but can we maybe get rid of the silver man who changes and stuff? No, there's definitely something to be said for Cameron being pig-headed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> also having the clout to do that. No, absolutely. I agree. Very I'm... easy to, 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 you know, just go with the norm. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about, personally, I've had conversations with producers when they, they come up, they say, oh, what are you going to film this on? And they go to the the go-to camera of the moment. So, you know, say so back into, you know, 2010, it would have been, you know, HD cam. And now it would be the Arri Alexa. And so, you know, it's very easy to, to go to whatever the, the current thing is that people are doing. But Cameron's the kind of person who says, well, actually, no, I don't want to shoot on the Arri Alexa. I want to shoot on this brand new camera that's in its, you know, I, I read about and it's sort of, you know, still in its er um, experimental stage. I mean, he's he's a guy who takes risks and pushes the technology, which I think a lot of other filmmakers don't do. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's he, they broke the mold. That's for sure. <laughs> He's not JC for nothing. <laughs> JC, it makes him sound like Top Cat. Or something. <laughs> hey, TC. Hey, JC. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. We're going to take a break and uh, join us after to, as we get into our movie hells. So, you're making a film. Horror film. Meta horror film. A horror film about horror film. Horror film about cinema. And why would you do that? Life is so beautiful. You just have something in your eye. I thought you said you wanted to do something different. Why do the same thing that everyone else is doing? They drive me mad. They all have opinion on everything. Nobody listened to me. Nobody tried to understand anything. Just too much. I found out recently that I had a, a syndrome when I was younger. When I try to go to sleep, the whole world will change. Like everything will go too quick, too slow, too big, too small. I could control it. Benny Loves Killing. Available now on Vimeo and IndieFlix. And if they don't go for it, you'll kill them all. Kane, a stone cold assassin. Three men, Corbin Taylor, Zeke Jones, and Jesse Williams, were held for questioning by Marshal Gazer. His revenge will be swift. Ain't you the law around here, Sheriff? Nowhere to run, no place to hide. Jesse, you ever meet Kane? 
the new violent and bloody horror short from director Mike Tang. Red Wolf Pines. Is that what you told Luke? He died like the dog he was. Starring Keith Irons as Kane. That bastard ain't gonna find us out here. Available on YouTube and official website www.apocalypticconservatory.com Red Wolf Pines Rated R for Rowdy What's the matter, Jane? placed under constant watch. Yeah, well, that much I know, but who done it? You don't even try and stop me. You know I'm going to harm you, yet you do nothing. What about that wonderful husband of yours? Oh, Martin. I love him. Well, someone has to die. Blood and Roses. Available now on Amazon Prime. In the US, UK, Germany and Japan. Welcome back. So, as I went first uh, with Movie Heavens, I'm going to go first with Movie Hell. Now, my Movie Hell comes with uh, a lot of uh, caveats and the reason why I'm saying that is it's a little unfair to criticize a film that was taken away from the director, which Piranha 2 The Spawning was. So I picked his very first feature film, Piranha 2. Now, originally, he wasn't the director on this. He was the art director. But um, the story goes that um, this was a co-production between a Italian production and Roger Corman and so a lot the the director and some of the crew were from Corman's side of things but the producer had a lot of say the Italian producer and so um, the original director whose name I I, I don't know uh, was fired after a week and Cameron was brought on and took over as director now what happened was they didn't seem to get along uh, but Cameron was able to finish shooting the film but was then locked out the editing room and there is a story in the um, in the book that Keith talked about and where he says or it's stated that he broke into the production office so he could actually edit the film but he has since 
in other interviews uh, refu- refuted that, saying that was probably wish fulfillment and he, he didn't do it. So the the film, um, I don't know if it's a carry on of the first one or not, but uh, it seems to be. I think they're in Barbados or somewhere. <laughs> it, it, it seems or Jamaica because there seems to be a lot of Rastafarians around for a start. <laughs> and it's, it's 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 one of those films where you can see kind of some of Cameron's sort of trademarks and also his interests. So it's got underwater photography in this. It's got Lance Henriksen in this. <laughs> um, As Steve. <laughs> well, police chief Steve. <laughs> and, you know, um, and also the the main actress in it, uh, Trisha O'Neill, um, she actually appeared in Titanic in a very small role, but, you know, which is kind of nice to think that that Cameron, you know, he, he 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 always works with the same actors, or he always brings them in. Um, so you know, Lance Henriksen has appeared in you know his his first three films, uh, and then you have the likes of Arnie, who appeared in Free, you know, Free Again. Um, Jeanette Goldstein, who appeared in actually, I think Free is the magic number. Yeah, isn't it? Michael Bean. Yeah, I guess he's yeah. <laughs> Yeah, f- he, he got yeah. cut out of one, but yeah. <laughs> but uh... let's think. Also, uh, oh, um, oh god, what's his name? Hudson from uh, from Aliens. Oh yeah, the actor who played. Yeah, um, uh, Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton. He's appeared in Free. Uh, he appeared in Terminator. He appeared in Aliens, and then he appeared in True Lies as Simon of all people. Mm. Brilliant. I love that. I love that whole bit. Makes me crack up. It's amazing. Whole nother podcast, I know, but amazing. Um, yeah. But also, we, we, we've, got, we've got a loose Star Trek connection here as well, because uh, Trisha O'Neill, um, she actually, a decade later, went on to play Captain Rachel Garrett, who was the uh, captain of the Enterprise NCC-1701C, in one of the best episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation ever called Yesterday's Enterprise. So, um, Oh, yes, I remember that well. Yes. yes. That was the one where, um, oh, uh, Lieutenant Yar came back. That's right. Uh, played by Denise Crosby. That's yeah. right. The first time. <laughs> yeah, what well, led to her, her playing a Romulan in later series because she was the child of, 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 of that uh, Natasha Indeed. Yar. Yes, the whole timeline thing again. There you go. Yeah. But by by the way, Miller Drake was the name of uh, the director originally attached to Piranha Piranha Two before he got uh, removed and replaced by Cameron. But the the thing is though, uh, every cloud has a silver lining, and the silver lining for this film was the fact that when he was over in Italy, uh, he he had a fever. And um, he wasn't very well, but at the end of it, he had a, a dream about a uh, a metal skeleton coming out of a fire, which he then, because he's an artist as well, he draws and paints, and he did this amazing sketch. Well, it's an amazing painting of the endoskeleton coming out of the fire with the with Sarah and Kyle in front of it, or 
I imagine at the time we didn't have names for them, but a couple. And, um, you know, so if it wasn't for this film, we wouldn't have had Terminator. I know. And God, the world would be a really shit place, wouldn't it? So well done, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. too. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, uh, I mean, the thing is, as as much as we've talked about, um, about Cameron's storytelling and stuff, um, in this, you really can't tell what's Cameron's and what's not. Um, the the production company did a really shitty job with this film. There, there, there was a scene. So the idea is, so these piranha can fly, and they're also they can they can swim in like seawater. It doesn't have to be like um, they're not f- uh, freshwater fishes; they're uh, sea fishes this time, and so. You know, it's this uh, resort down by the beach and uh, Trisha O'Neill's a a diving instructor and she becomes aware of these creatures when one of her students gets attacked uh, when they're diving around this wreck, which is supposedly a a military ship that um, were carrying the the sort of the eggs for these sort of um, mutated uh, piranhas that they were breeding. And there's there's this so there's there's scenes which the editing in it or you know what happens is really really choppy so there's a bit near the end where um they have the whole jaws thing where the the guy who runs the hotel the manager doesn't believe them you know even though they well they don't have any evidence but they know that people have gone missing and all this stuff and uh, he's not willing to sort of stop this event which is, you know, just going to be a, a big buffet for the the flying fish. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, but they they try and prevent this from happening, and they have one of the uh, the police officers go and patrol the beach, and you sort of see him walking along, and then it cuts away, and then it cuts back, and he's coming out the sea, and he's, you know, half his skin's missing and stuff, and I went, oh wait a minute, did I just miss something? And I actually you know, scrolled back the film or rewound it. And, um, and no, I hadn't missed anything. There was no scene of the guy being dragged into the water or anything. I was just like, oh, this is really weird. Also, the, the beginning as well was edited awfully. Uh-huh. You know, the bit where, so you see this couple in a dinghy and then you see a, you see two people diving and I went, wait a minute, are they the same couple? <laughs> It took me a while to sort of kind of figure out what the, if they were the same couple or not, and it was. And they decide of for a bit of underwater sex, where you have to, you know, you get undressed and then you take um, your your air tanks off as well. Because how are you going to kiss if you've got one of these, uh, you know, the, uh, the one of these breathers in your mouth? And uh, yeah, it's just it was such a weird scene. And of course, yes, they get eaten by these piranha because. You know, you got to have that, but there was no tension. There was no nothing to it. It was really, it was really flat. Yeah, there, there, there was no real scares in it. I mean, you do actually have two characters who are actual bitches, who you know, <laughs> these two, uh, you know, these attract these two attractive women who turn up at the resort in a, uh, well, not a yacht, but like a schooner, and they're you know trying to steal food from the uh, the restaurant there and get caught by this uh, poor poor cook who's got a, a stammer 
and they kind of trick him to bring in some food for him and you know with the sort of promise of uh you know some sex you know a bit of a freeway and uh of course when he turns up and gives them the food they uh they you know they're pretty nasty to him yeah they skip out on him actually and and so you know you're quite happy when those two get eaten <laughs> yeah <laughs> but those two they those two were proper bitches um not you know as i say the um, mary elizabeth manster antonio in uh in the bis was definitely not a bitch no i agree i agree and, and not and not in the same league as these two girls yeah no i mean it is kind of hard to uh hard to believe that uh you know the man that went on to do the uh, the Terminator films started with this one. So I love the fact that you said it. You know, it's like not really a Cameron movie as such. Um, I remember seeing this my with my mum and dad on VHS, and we had a you know back in the day. I mean, I was very quite young, probably t- definitely too young to watch it really. But hey, we had a laugh because it was marketed under the um, title Piranha Two Flying Killers. <laughs> here in the uk okay. uh, before the spawning <laughs> and um yeah i mean it is let's be honest it's 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 uh it's pretty bad um uh you, you know you can't really take it too seriously um but as as you rightly said you know it has a silver lining in the fact that uh yes he did indeed have his his dream which led led to the terminator uh he also um figured out apparently how to do the uh the, the the leaping face hugger trick that he does in in aliens from from the effects guy on this film uh interestingly That's and right. also he did actually uh he he did a rewrite on the script himself as as Cameron normally does um although he's credited as H A Milton um on the script thing but he also this is where he got to meet and work with uh Charles Elgley who um, he went on to do Dark Angel with uh, later down the track. And uh, Charles now um, is one of the writers and producers on The Walking Dead. So, um, so he, he, you know, he did meet some, uh, some some good people and some good things came out of this film for him. And, you know, obviously it was his first break. And he said in an interview that it's the best flying piranha movie that's ever been made. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Seems it doesn't have any competition. Yeah, exactly. I think it I think I think if there was another flying piranha uh film out there, it it might do a little bit better. Yeah. But this is yet another one of those films that was trying to sort of follow on and cash in on the success of Jaws, wasn't it? It was one of many, mm. many poor imitations yeah. that, that 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 came out um afterwards some of which we've talked about before <laughs> so yeah but the thing is though the original piranha uh the one directed by joe dante because actually there was a piranha before that one as well yes. which uh which i've seen and i don't think was very good but uh, i enjoyed um you know joe joe dante's piranha because it had a, a, this great fun satirical edge to it it was written by john sales the uh, original one i think <laughs> yes who also wrote battle beyond the Stars. indeed it's all connected and but, <laughs> yes it is <laughs> but i mean it was a lot more fun a lot more scarier as well than this film this film was just an absolute mess but uh i think probably just trying to do the best out of a bad situation um but you know but the thing is 
if it wasn't for this film, then Cameron wouldn't have had the idea, you know, to make the Terminator. Or you know, this it seems to be, you know, that's where the genesis came from. It came out of this bad experience, because. Yeah, I wouldn't. You wouldn't want to put this on anybody, really, <laughs> to sort of not only come in on onto a production that's already begun, but then to have that film taken away from you and cut by somebody else. I know. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, it was. It was. Uh, I watched it um, uh, again a couple of days ago. Uh, hadn't seen it, you know, in years, and completely forgotten about. Mm. You know, uh, when I was a kid, watching it on VHS, and. Uh, yeah, it it is. Um, it, it it's hard to see that there's there's much Cameron in it, but then again, um, like you said, that there are a few connections there, and obviously it was not an ideal situation. I mean, the control freak that we know Cameron as, he certainly <laughs> wasn't in this film. You, you know, uh, he he wasn't really in control of it, and um, you know, you know, I think obviously the film. The film suffers for that, but uh, but but like you said, it's it absolutely paved the way um, for him to go on and do more things. So everybody has to have a first film and has to start somewhere. And uh, you, you know, in yeah. his case, you know, we we know some directors that make a great first movie and then go on to make not so good movies. Where at least in his case, he, he made the the one duff movie first, and then let's be honest, everything since has been pretty damn good <laughs> if not amazing <laughs> oh yeah you must admit um, that it was really difficult to pick movie hells for cameron it was because apart from this film everything else is really yes, good it is and it all just comes down to a matter of taste yes. no absolutely i agree i agree it, it's been very difficult <laughs> I'm not sure if that's all I've got to say about it. Uh, I can't. I can't think of anything else. We do, you don't want to talk more about Piranha Two this morning? <laughs> not really. I I I I sat through it and it was a real trudge. I mean, it's 90 minutes long. It's his shortest film, and oh my god, it felt so long. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, you know, Lance Henriksen was fun to watch, and I wish there was more of him in it. But uh, unfortunately, he's not in it that much. I mean, I did love the way he. Um, at the end, he jumps out of a helicopter and swims into a yeah, boat, yeah. and the helicopter just crashes. <laughs> it just, yeah, crashes. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a bit. Mad. I, I have to admit as well. I, yeah. I you know, Trisha O'Neill uh, was very watchable in this. You know, she she didn't do anything wrong. She was just dealing with bad material. But I don't think that she was yeah. particularly bad. Um, th there were some definitely there were some definitely some bad actors in this as well, though. <laughs> Most of which haven't gone on yeah. to do much else. <laughs> yeah, and the scares in it weren't that scary to the truth. And yeah, um, well, I mean, this this thing shame. we said earlier about him being very good at, um, you know, directing tension and chaos and all that. You know, mm. ha had he had he had the control and the tools and the budget to do it, you know, he he could have maybe maybe developed that sort of thing for this film, but. Um, but sadly, yes, it isn't there. In fact, there isn't even really the coverage for it to um, to edit together particularly well uh, anyway. And, um, you, you know, like you said, yeah. you end up yeah. seeing characters and you're like, hold on a second, where did they come from? And, <laughs> yeah, they just appeared from nowhere. And, like, their, their introductions were obviously somewhere on the uh, 
on the cutting room floor or or didn't come out for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, moving on. Um Keith, what is your pick for movie hell? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's not unusual for me to caveat the hell out of my um picks for movie hell anyway. Um and you're right, in this in this case it was I found it even more difficult than I normally do to uh, to, to, to find a film uh, in the canon. So uh, as I usually do, I just went with my gut instinct and I thought out of Cameron's movies, what haven't I enjoyed so much? And why do I think the reasons for that are? So what I've picked is uh, from 2009, um, Avatar, which we've mentioned a few times. Um a film that Cameron had wanted to make for many years and, uh, you know, due to technology um, and various limitations and waiting for things to catch up, uh, you know, did take some time for him to get round to. Uh, in terms of thematically, um, like many of his films, uh, it deals kind of with nature versus technology. Um, so, so, you know, it has, it has some of the themes that, that, that we've seen throughout his, his films up until this point. Um, it is a beautifully, absolutely beautifully designed movie, which, um, you, you know, he was involved in a lot of that. Yeah. It, it looks like a yes album comes to life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, all this bioluminescent, um, plant life, etc. Uh, you, you know, just 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 amazing looking, and obviously another absolute technological breakthrough because this um, this has moved in leaps and bounds the the technology for motion capture. Basically, he pushed what they what they'd done on Lord of the Rings. Uh, interestingly, we talked about it on the Zemeckis uh, podcast. He actually visited the set of Beowulf. Um, to look at how they were accomplishing some of some of the, uh, the 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 you know the things that Zemeckis was doing there, and they developed for this um, the use of two types of cameras. So you had your virtual cameras and your reference cameras. Mm. So this was what we talked about briefly on on the on the uh, when we talked about Beowulf. You know how actors like this because it gave them the the the, the freedom to act out entire scenes. And um, he also uh, redeveloped uh, 3D for a modern cinema audience um, by developing and putting money into creating the fusion camera. So again, he did a lot of, lot of things that have shaped the industry and in fact shaped the way that, you know, we're still watching films that, that are released today um, with this. Uh, it, it all goes back to he did an early test for the new motion capture. He did a, a little short film called Brother Termite in 2001, where he wanted to replace an actor's performance with a CG character, but wanted to still capture the essence, the facial expressions, the the the, the eye movements, etc., of that character, and. Um, he said that the way he looks at this is he very much thinks of um, what he's created here as CG makeup. So it's another tool for the actor um, to develop a character, but actually to think of it as computer generated makeup and therefore, you know, less time sat in the 
in the makeup chair having prosthetics etc applied and I think again what he's created in in this in terms of visually um, it gets past that uncanny valley um, stigma that we've talked about on other um, podcasts when it comes to films that are that are CG created. Um, it's interesting. He he absolutely maintains that this is not an animated movie, but uh, you, you know one could one could argue that many parts of it are. Oh yeah, I mean when when we're with the uh, um, what do they call the Navi? Yes, the Navi. Yes, they're called the Navi. <laughs> um, it's all computer generated, so it does look like an animation. It's just when we get the the humans interacting with the uh, Navi, that's when you uh, you suddenly get um, it, it stops being an animation. But saying that, um, when when you see those scenes, they don't look out of place. It doesn't. It's not jarring. No, it's not at all. They look like they both can be in the same um, in the same space. So yeah. on that, it's quite a, a an achievement. But yeah. It's it does feel like an animated film. Yeah, no, it does. It does, and um, uh, you, you know, one of the uh, one of the other things is is you know, in terms of of timeline for this, he actually took uh, he had put three years of work into this production before they even began principal live action photography um, on the sets that they built, uh, you know, for those parts down in New Zealand. So. Um, you know, an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of craftsmanship, an incredible amount of uh, developing new technology and design went into this film. Um, there is a documentary on the on the Blu-ray uh, called Capturing Avatar. And when you watch that documentary, you do, you know, you can't have anything but absolutely, re absolute respect for not only James Cameron, but all of the uh, technicians, artists, and craftspeople involved in this, um, in in actually, you know, producing this film because it is incredible. So, that being the case, you might be listening to this thinking, "All right, Keith, so why the hell have you picked it for movie hell if it's so amazing that they've done all this?" And like I said, I went off my initial reaction when I went to see this film there was a massive amount of hype around this film Cameron hadn't done he'd gone away to do his documentaries after Titanic um and you know there'd been some years and then this film finally came out with a lot of anticipation when I first went to see it um I was certainly I went to see it in IMAX 3D when I first went to see this and was very aware that he had pushed 3D technology um, to a different level. So rather than having it as a kind of gimmick where, where things pop out of the screen at you, he'd done it to create depth and, and you know, to create the depth in his worlds. And, and, and that, you know, worked really well. And I think, you know, is probably one of the best contemporary uses of 3D. I mean, we often talk on our podcast about we don't even bother going and seeing most releases nowadays in 3D because it is just used as a a marketing gimmick rather than than an enhancement to the film. Um, obviously, visual effects wise, blowing away. Um, a little bit animated for my tastes, um, but you know I could totally see the performances that the likes of 
you know, Zoe Saldana, Sam Worthington, Sigourney Weaver, et cetera, et cetera, were doing, um, you, you know, through that technology. And it definitely came across more than, than any film up until that point had. Um, my big problem with it was, and I've read reviews where other people have said this, but it was how I felt. It, it, it was a very predictable um, story. I mean, I'm a massive fan as, as I often say on this, of, of Kevin Costner's Dances with Wolves. And that was a film that inspired me to want to wanna go on and study films and become a filmmaker as much as any of Cameron's work had. Absolutely. And, you know, th this, this gets the mickey taken, you know, Dances with Smurfs and whatever, or Wildcats. Yeah, I was going to say Dances with Blue People. Exactly. Because essentially, plot-wise, it is following that same... Uh, those same story beats and and yes it is you know nature versus technology and and a and a you know a man that uh, that, that that comes from the other side into that and then you've kind of got a, a bit of Shakespeare going there as well you've got the whole Romeo and Juliet thing where you, you, you know he falls in love with one of those natives and 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 you know the two sides are obviously opposing sides so that was that was one of the issues the other thing, apart from it being predictable story, and this is really weird when you when you compare it to what we've talked about, particularly on the abyss here, is I found the characters themselves uh, in a 3D film to be incredibly two-dimensional, um, particularly the, 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 the human characters in this. Um, you've got some wonderful actors. You've got, uh, you know, Giovanni, Rabishi, who is an excellent actor that I've never really seen do a bad, a duff performance in anything. But in this film, he just plays a totally unlikable corporate sleaze. Um, and, you know, some I've heard some argue, well, that's no different to Paul Reiser as Carter Burke in Aliens. But I would disagree with that because Carter Burke had some other things going on. But Just to agree with you that Carter Burke is... A character who at the beginning is a good guy yes. and you only find out later that you know that he's a bad guy. working for the company and all that yeah i mean here um basically uh you've got the, that's the other thing i had a problem with the mineral part of basically basically um a soldier has gone to this planet um called pandora uh and and basically they that you know Scientists have been looking at the uh, indigenous, indigenous life on this beautiful planet. As I said, it's this bioluminescent type forest planet, uh, which 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 is beautiful. And you've got this this race of Navi, um, very spiritual uh, type inhabitants. But at the same time, you've got um, corporate uh, and military uh, presence at work that basically want to get this mineral from this planet that, that that they can use for profit. And I can't believe that they actually called this mineral unobtainium, which I was like, seriously? <laughs> Come on, James. You know, you're really good at this stuff. And I can't believe you actually that's the best you could come up with in 11 years that you were developing this script, you know. But um Oh, it just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> so but yes, yeah, so you've got you've got a really two-dimensional character it, played by a really good actor in um in Giovanni Rabishi likewise you've got Stephen Lang in this who's playing the military 
leader um, who, again, is just completely unlikable and just like a, a moustache twirling villain from from the mi- minute you meet him. And, you know, I think what it was... <laughs> well, he doesn't twirl his moustache. What he does is he holds his breath. He holds his breath. There you go, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he does this... It, the, the thing about Pandora is that the atmosphere is um, toxic to humans, so they, they have to wear uh, breathing masks. And he, he does this one thing where um, halfway through the film, the good guys are escaping, and he opens the door and uh, holds his breath and starts shooting at them. And he does this whole thing when he gets the face mask on, he just takes a big deep breath. You know, it's like, I'm a man. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. The, the reason I picked this is because when I first went to see it at the cinema, you know, James Cameron movie, I was going to see it in the best possible format, you know, IMAX 3D, really excited about it. And I left the cinema feeling a bit, I, w- I was kind of more impressed with what had been accomplished uh, in terms of filmmaking technology than I was the film itself. And I found the film itself rather, like I said, predictable. I found the characters rather two-dimensional. And I really didn't have, I, di- I didn't, it didn't have any revisit appeal to me. I didn't really want to go and see it again. So much so that a few months later, they actually released an extended edition. And for the first time, I didn't go and see a Cameron extended edition. So, and then when it came out as a 3D, uh, sorry, a three disc, not 3D, a 2D, but a three disc special edition on Blu-ray, I finally bought this film because it was loaded with extras and it actually had three versions of the film on it. It had the theatrical, the extended edition and a collector's extended edition. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, plus an array of extras, no commentary, but loads of documentaries. And I thought, let's check it out. Well, I'll be honest, until we prep him for this podcast, I hadn't even opened it. It had been on my shelf for years, which is very unlike me, right? So I thought, well, that says something. So what I did is I actually um, watched, I wasn't going to sit and watch all three versions in one go. I decided to watch the the three-hour version, which is the collector's extended version, which has everything from the extended edition plus an opening set on Earth with uh, the Jake Sully character played by Sam Worthington. Uh, And you get a bit of backstory, Mm. which is told in the theatrical versions in a couple of quick flashbacks when he when he awakes from the hypersleep. And, um, you know, this time watching it, I will say I I enjoyed it. Um, I was more moved by it than I expected to be. Um, but did my opinions really change? No, I, I still feel that it's not Cameron's strongest piece of work in so much everything we've talked about on movie heaven and, and a lot of his other films, we said about how he is really good at getting the balance of storytelling, uh, technology, artistry, you know, visual effects, all of these things he gets in a really good balance to tell a really gripping, entertaining story. What I feel with Avatar, and I'm sure there are listeners that will disagree with me on this, but I felt that uh, 
even though it was a definite feat of filmmaking, I felt that he hadn't got the balance right in terms of characterization and um, and story and tension and, and, and things of that nature. It all felt very predictable and, and very much like ground that had been trod before. But, you know, I don't totally hate it. It's just the one out of his, apart from Piranha 2, which you'd already picked, out of his filmography, <laughs> it was the only one that I could pick saying, you know what, I enjoy this less than his other work. So that's that's pretty much how I've got here. What do you think? Well, I, I enjoy it. Uh, I mean, I I went back and watched the uh, the theatrical cut because I don't own the all singing or dancing Blu-ray version. I just own the uh, the first one that came out. Uh, I I just I enjoy it. Uh, it isn't a film I go back and watch often, but uh, going back this time watching it again, you know it's it's enjoyable i think it just falls into the trap of the of the white man coming in and solving the natives problems yeah which is you know at the time when it was being compared to dances with wolves and also fern gully the the, the last rainforest that's right yeah which was a, a an animated um story about fairies and uh, you know a white man who gets shrunk down to their size and you know he's got you know robin williams as a crazy bat <laughs> and uh it, it's it seemed to have the same plot the whole idea that the forest was under threat from um you know all these you know big machinery and uh you know here comes the white man to to save the natives from their problem and it does if it, it, you know and it also feels like um, Cameron watched Dances with Wolves and said, you know what, I like this film but I didn't like the ending. It's a bit of a bummer ending. You know what, I'm going to remake it and this time the natives win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well this is this is the other thing with it that I think it's you know, again, why I would choose it as hell for all the good that there is in in, in design and technology with this film and performances etc. Um, you, you know, at no point do you ever really see the human side of the story? Meaning, you, you, you know, because of the way they're portrayed and because of the way it's done, you kind of, you, you know, you're so easily on the on the side of the navvy right from right from the get go, and there's not a shift. There's not there's no shift in it whatsoever. So, um, yeah, I, I just I just think it. You know, I, I honestly think that even though I like the message of the story, uh, very much so, um, I just don't think it was it to me. It was almost like Cameron was so because he did take on so much with this, you know, and he shot the thing and he went and did all of the, the plates and everything for the um, for the background uh, after he'd done the, the, the performance capture. And it's almost like, um, you know, the man spent so much time uh making this possible to make that he took his eye off the ball with the actual story and characterization i i feel um and you know i i don't know whether that's unfair but but that's kind of when i look at his body of work that that's how i feel about this one um compared to 
you know, the likes of, of things we've mentioned already. I think it's, it's definitely a case of of the stories being stewed a bit too much because it's so much time making this film compared to his other films. I feel when he's kind of got, I've sort of got that pressure that time he's got, you know, get on with it and get it made that he comes up with, you know, that his stories are good. But in this case, he had time to think about it and time to sort of maybe play around with the story a bit. And maybe that's kind of like, yeah. It was kind of like my, my story at the beginning when I was saying about his, 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 the aliens commentary where he talked about writing and, and, mm. and, you know, doing the, 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 the three feature scripts in one go. And, you, you know, those, those scripts turned out to really work and be tight and, 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 you know, you know turned into good movies. And, uh, you know, he did that under time pressure. So, so you might be right. It might be the fact that, um, it was almost labored over too much that, um, that, that, that it kind of got, yes, sort of diluted down in the process. I don't know. And also you have this sort of barrier between you and the characters because they're animated. Mm. I'm not saying, you know, you can feel for animated characters, but, you know, but if when it's a case of that it's supposed to be photorealistic, then there is a kind of a detachment, which you don't get with if it had been maybe actors in prosthetics. I know I'm kind of really skimming the surface with this because mm. there is so much potentially to talk about um you, you know with with this film and the making of this film and and um you know the technology and 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 obviously some of the themes of the film but you, you know for me it was just um when i had to pick hell this was just the one that didn't didn't excite me in the same way that that the rest of his work uh piranha 2 excluded <laughs> the rest of his work is done i feel it's all been of a fairly consistent level all round um whereas this is is definitely a, a you know a groundbreaking film but i don't think quite uh, quite delivers and it'll be interesting if we are indeed getting these sequels as his next films uh, um yeah. it'll be interesting to see whether you know, the characters maybe are more developed. And when I say I don't mean the technology of the characters, I mean the characters themselves are a bit more developed and the stories are a bit more engaging. Um, now he's managed to sort of streamline the rest of the process. I, I, I don't know. I, I think the problem is, is where are we going to go with this? Because the film had a definitive ending. It did, so yeah. to come back and have four more sequels... I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll have to wait and see. It depends what he wants to do with it. It may not be a direct sequel. But then again, saying that, supposedly Sigourney Weaver's coming, going to be back in it, and I know Sam Worthington signed up for it. So, uh, I mean, it'd be interesting if it had been maybe that we jump a generation and see what happens. You know, stuff like uh, like what they did with June. You know, you had like the June Messiah and Children of June. Mm -hmm. So you actually saw what who, who. Well, funny I say that because June is about you know a um, a character who pretends to be a messiah to survive in this uh, hostile world and to lead his people against the Harkonnen. 
and at the end of the you know in the first book he's a hero but in the second book he's a villain so i wonder if he's going to go with that on that route with that story and then seeing what happens with maybe the the children of uh, of Jake Sully and uh, Natiri. I mean that would be kind of interesting actually if it was kind of a generational thing. But it's it's really hard to see you know because there's no information. There's no information about these sequels. We just know they're coming. Mm-hmm. You know, we heard there was going to be two sequels and now there's going to be four sequels and it's like well how how far can you push this story about this planet and blue people (laughs) yes indeed (laughs) i guess we will see um but yeah i mean you know with with cameron's whole career um there's 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 so much to uh so much to talk about i mean obviously he has always been a big advocate and proponent for digital filmmaking technology um you know his his view is we're creating an illusion anyway uh, when you make films and having everything in the digital realm makes it that much more malleable. So, um, you know, you know, in that uh, side by side documentary that we often reference, he he's involved in that and he very much sits on the side of, of being pro digital. Um, hence why he's, you know, developed a lot of it yeah. through his own corporations. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, he is, for me, he is certainly uh, one of the top filmmakers and was a massive inspiration uh, for me when I was getting into filmmaking and uh, going off to study it. Um, hence why I made my, uh, my thesis about him. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, it's, um, it's funny you bring up the, uh, the documentary side by side also known as the changing looks of Keanu Reeves. <laughs> yes. Because he certainly, his look does certainly change a lot in that documentary. It's the fun <laughs> of acting. <laughs> but no, I mean, he's, you know, he, as we said quite a bit in this uh, podcast, that he, he's a, certainly an innovator and he, he pushes the technology in cinema. But he also does it in aid of the story. That's the important bit. And, and up to this point, it has served the story. I mean, Avatar. I mean, I enjoy Avatar. I mean, I, I'm I'm going to say that I enjoy it. I don't think it is his best one, but it's still enjoyable. It's like a a bad Cameron flick is probably better than you know somebody else's best. Oh, film. absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I and I want I want to make that clear as well. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I am not here saying this is awful. I'm here saying this this is my least favorite for these reasons. Yeah, <laughs> which is what I usually do anyway, Simon, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a lot more harsh. Than yeah, that. well, good cop, bad cop. Well, I enjoy this film and um, I, I, I imagine people out there are going, why didn't you pick Titanic? That's an awful film. Well, to tell the truth, I really enjoy Titanic and I have a lot of time for Me that too. film. I mean, at the time, I was not a big Leonardo DiCaprio fan. Yeah, you know, I still sort of shed one single tear when he, you know, died at the end. Yeah. Though I'm sure there was enough room on that uh, on that wood piece of wood to for both of them to get on there. <laughs> yes, indeed. No, I I, <laughs> I, um, I often get the piss taken at me by by some of my friends because 
I am a big fan of Titanic and I won't hear anything bad said about it. And I often get laughed at about that. But hey, I don't care. I'm going on air here saying I'm a fan of Titanic. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) And I read the book, actually. He did did a book. There was an interesting book. I remember I read it on a trip to L.A. uh, at one point called um, James Cameron and the Making of Titanic. And uh, very interesting read, very gripping read, Um, goes through the entire process and, uh, you know, talks, it it says about, you know, meetings and conversations he had with Lucas and Spielberg and, you know, you know, all sorts of all sorts of interesting anecdotes in that book. So uh, that's another good read um, if anybody wants to study that sort of stuff. There you go. Right, I think this is a good place to end it because I'm sure our listeners are going, bloody hell, this is as long as a Cameron's director's This cut. is true, this is true. <laughs> um, I, would like, I would like to say, and I, I hope this is appropriate, and if it's not, you can always cut it out, Simon, but um, I'd kind of like to dedicate this episode to Trevor Steedman, who played Private Wazbowski in, in Aliens and came and helped us on the uh, podcast that we did on Aliens Day. Uh, and he talked about having met James Cameron and auditioning for James Cameron. Um, sadly, Trevor passed away in June, uh, which is very sad. But uh, I think while we're here, we could perhaps um, dedicate this this episode to him if you feel that's appropriate. Oh, I feel it's very appropriate. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lovely gesture. And uh... You know, our, our thoughts go out to um, to his family and his friends. And uh, uh, I just want to sort of do a shout out for the UK Colonial Marines. Um, you know, these guys, um, you know, pitched in and, you know, put money towards his funeral. So, you know, massive shout out to you guys. And, uh, you know, I'm sure every I'm sure it was a, a great event. Well, uh, <laughs> well you can't a funeral is not a great event but you know i'm sure that you yeah know, you guys did a hell of a send-off yeah i mean i don't mean to end it on a sad note but i i do think it's somewhat relevant that uh that, that you know trevor was involved in in aliens as well as a lot of other movies that we're fans of he worked as a stuntman over the years um but you know it was very gracious of him to uh to, to, to get involved in the in the alien podcast that we did go back and check that out please listeners and um you know very very sad to hear of his passing so uh just thought we should mention it and i think as a mark of respect for trevor we're not going to do our usual send-off i think we're going to end it there so um thank you for listening and um and do check out the next episode of movie heaven movie hell thanks a lot mm-hmm.